Welcome to another episode of Into the Remote Podcast, the show where we explore the new ways of working and exciting new future of work. Glad to have you with us again. Welcome to another episode of Into the Remote Podcast. Well, it's no secret that the team makes or breaks your company. And in fact, not having the right team made it to the third place of the reasons why startup fails. Right after no need for your product and a lack of cash. So hiring and building startup teams is hard, even in the times of prosperity. Now add to that the current economic slowdown, soaring inflation, working in a remote setup, and the difficulty level goes up at least by 10x. And today we'll be talking about building remote teams in these challenging times. And I cannot imagine a better guest to address this topic than Teresa Machačková. Teresa, welcome. Thank you so much uh, for having me. I really appreciate it, Jure. Glad to have you here with us today. Teresa, you have impressive track record of working with some of the most successful SaaS companies in the region, product board, around, and currently DeepNote. Not only that, you were also a talent partner at a VC fund Credo Ventures, and you are now running the course hiring on Ramp. Teresa, what drives you? Good question, Uri. Uh, I could I could ask the same question uh, to you uh, because you also have so much energy. But I guess a simple answer would be just people around me. But thank you so much for all the compliments. I don't deserve them. <laughs> no, <laughs> seriously, like um, you have a really good nose for the companies that are building something exceptional with an exceptional team, as you said, that the people around you um, is something that drives you. Tell us more about your current company, uh, DeepNote. How many people are there on the team? How many locations do you work out of? And what is your general setup? Do you work in an on-site hybrid, online mode? Tell us more. Mm -hmm. So, as you know, DeepNote is an early stage startup. Uh, we are developing a notebook for data scientists. And the founding team, so we are about 50 people totally, but the founding team is entirely Slovak. But as we grew, our team started to consist of an amazing people uh, from all around the world, including New Zealand, San Francisco, Netherlands, New York, UK, Hungary, Spain, really, really good mix of people. Um, because we never wanted to limit ourselves by finding the, the, the best talent that we are today, which means Prague, uh, Prague office or like the Prague location. So that's why DeepNote is always going to be um, remote friendly and always seeking to hire diverse talent. I love that. And I would love to know a little bit more of the details and we're going to go deeper into that, them later on. So what is the percentage of the roles that you hire at DeepNote remotely? Meaning that roles that don't need to be located in one of your larger offices. Mm -hmm. So our team is 50-50 uh, split between mm -hmm. remote and office folks. Um, so around like 25 people based in Czech Republic, we work in a Prague office and the remaining 25 people or like it's maybe 24 people work from various locations around the world. Um, we have quite big group based in San Francisco, Silicon Valley. Uh, so our go-to-market team that consists of marketing and sales. They are based in the US, in San Francisco, because we want to establish a strong presence uh, in the US market. 
other than that, uh, we go with the pretty traditional model uh, as like a central Eastern uh, European startup. Uh, so we have engineering product and design team here in Europe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, hiring these remotely across many time zones causes, you know, a certain challenges and poses certain challenges onto the founders. So what nuances should founders and leaders be aware of when building a, a, a team remotely? Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you asked you, right? Because it's for me, that's really important question that many founder under many founders underestimate. And I think there are like three steps you should be aware of before mm-hmm. um, before building a team remotely. One is before you go hiring. Second is what you should focus on during hiring remotely. And the third one is after you hire a certain remote team. And the first before hiring is that you aim to hire diverse talent. Uh, if you aim to do that remotely, you need to be mindful of uh, the locations where you search for the candidates. So I definitely recommend to do a cost analysis, maybe map the market uh, environment first before, before you decide you want to hire everywhere um, because you can find some location where you maybe it's not going to be even like possible to hire uh, hire certain talent because like the legal jurisdictions are really difficult and it can lead to significant overhead when hiring in these locations. So definitely before hiring, think about that. Mm-hmm. Dur- during hiring, that's the second step is that you never underestimate how you evaluate the talent. Um, so if you're like screening and interviewing, you should uh, you should evaluate whether the candidate is even capable to, to work remotely because mm-hmm. it's not easy. Uh, so we call it at around, we started to call it a good remote fit, uh, not like a cultural, cultural fit, but remote fit mm-hmm. because around is also a remote only company. And then uh, like we designed a specific screening criteria while interviewing the candidates, for example, we only hired senior talent with a track of being uh, successful in remote roles, a uh, track record of ability to work asynchronously. Uh, you can also sc- screen self-determination uh, of the candidates. It means give me some examples of how mm-hmm. you go about goal settings. Uh, uh, give me some examples of specific projects where you've worked independently and what was your motivation and you can go deep in into these areas. Um, and then the third uh, step is when you already have some team or you're starting onboarding the team, you really need to be aware of uh, paying closer attention to like creating habits uh, that may feel artificial first because for example, the onboarding uh, or during the onboarding, you really need to invest much more time there um, than like companies that, that are onboarding on site because you will be much less effective uh, in building relationships and trust uh, while onboarding. And it's really important part of the onboarding itself. Uh, then, for example, you need to build like a some kind of mechanism about how to provide feedback or like how to provide feedback and build like a culture around around that uh, so you don't miss on opportunities for sharing feedback and and so on 
Yeah, no, th this was <laughs> really awesome. I, I loved how you split it in the before, during, and after. And, um, you know, one of the questions that popped out in my head when you were talking about these different stages, do you ever meet the candidate in person? Mm -hmm. um, it's a good question. Um, it's actually, yeah, it's it's happening a lot. And I would recommend when you're hiring for a senior talent, for example, right now uh, we are hiring for heads of engineering or even if we were hiring people into the leadership team at DeepNode, we would always have a step where, for example, the founder or someone from the leadership team would travel um, to the candidate or the candidate would be like sent uh, sent to Prague or the, like to the rest of the team uh, and they would meet personally. And that's actually a really good, really good step. Do you have some experience with that? Uh, you know, I was I was very curious because even though we grew to the size of almost 300 people, our CEO, Peter Komornik, like he interviewed every single candidate. Right. Like mm -hmm. we had this kind of a ritual at Slido that even though at the later stages when CEOs don't really often meet, you know, the candidates, like he always wanted to meet the person, you mm -hmm. know, as part of the the the, the interview yeah. rounds. And in most cases, if it was possible, um, obviously there was a personal meeting. But in many cases during the Corona times, like it was not possible to meet the candidate right uh, face to face. Mm. So, again, you play with uh, with the cards that you have been dealt with. But uh, I'm, I'm glad you said that for more senior roles, you prefer meeting the candidate in person. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, one more thing that I would like to elaborate on. So uh, even though you have the discussion about, you know, the conditions of working full in, in a fully remote setup, still things could go wrong, right? Like people might, you know, the reality may, might be different for both sides. What is the most common cause of people leaving the company? Mm-hmm. That's really good question, and I think it really um, it really depends on on the company. Uh, I I can't actually I haven't seen so many people leaving mm -hmm. uh, due to, for example, a bad manager. Which is like mm -hmm. if you read uh, if you read Harvard Business Review, I don't know, mm -hmm. like if it was you who wrote that article because I know that you <laughs> that you were publishing there, but. Uh, there are like so many articles uh, or like you can Google it, the reasons for, for people going uh, somewhere else or looking for a new opportunity is because of their manager. Um, but I haven't seen that that much in companies where I work or where, yeah, mm -hmm. where um, I'm involved. Uh, I see more like more reason uh, within the fast growing startups it's more about they are not uh, like the, the person, the employee is probably not the great fit for the stage mm -hmm. of like 30 people. And then like uh, for when, when the company is growing really quickly, then it's a different company, like after six or eight months, because suddenly there are like 500 people and or like 200 or something and it's just a different company and it requires a different skill set uh for for the people so i i feel like that could be a reason why 
I, I can relate to this like so much. It almost feels like working for different or for a series of different companies, right? Like the dynamic in the team is completely mm -hmm. different when there are just 10 of you, 30, uh, 30 people on the team, 80 or 150, right? And uh, I like to say that there are these kind of, um, you know, thresholds uh, that you cross as a team in terms of the size yeah. when things drastically change, right? Like after 30 people, the communication is usually non-structured and you can turn around and, you know, ask your colleague, hey, Teresa, what about this and that email? Did you send it? But suddenly about uh, this kind of a threshold, you need to put a more systematic approach to communication, one of the instances, exactly. right? Exactly. And also when you're like 5, 10, 20 people, uh, it just feels like a big scrappy and happy exactly. family and uh, everyone knows everybody. So, uh, and you can be creative and you can do like everything from like cleaning the dishes to like building the strategy for, for the product. And once you get like over 50 people, uh, it it's just no longer the case. So, uh, like, and also like you start to realize that you don't know everyone and maybe it's just not the company that you want to be at anymore. Uh, and also like, because you don't know anyone, you need to start building these like kind of, uh, impersonality. So from like being a family and friends, you should also change the narrative of, so now we are like a sports team. We are like a football team because you would never like fire uh like your your mom or your your son or from like if you have like, or the family member because uh they don't meet your expectations for the performance or something I can relate Sorry. to what you're saying like so much, and it seems that you've been you've been through this journey with a couple of companies, and you you have that experience firsthand. And it's very very difficult for both sides, right? Like the managers and leaders, as well as as uh, as people on the team, and also this kind of a mental transformation from what you said, like a, a team of people that feels more like a family to. Uh, to, to more of a professional sports team all the way up to the specialized role and a bit of, well, an ever-increasing amount of politics that comes along with the size, etc. Right. Exactly. Um, I would like to get back to, you know, hiring and building st the startup teams. And, you know, in the remote setup alone, it's already difficult. And now the economic conditions for startups have changed dramatically, right? There are massive layoffs in the tech companies. There is a, a you know, economic slowdown in general. Uh, so how does the hiring um, actually differ uh, in these times of challenge and recession compared to the times of high growth? Mm -hmm. So yes, indeed, it's a difficult time. Um, that's uh, definitely, that's definitely true. However, in a startup environment, uh, I find it actually a little bit healthier to navigate, uh, navigate smart hiring rather than just throwing money at all the problems we have and like hiring like just every single person that comes uh, into our way. Um, so uh, yeah, I was actually more like allergic about like making nonsense sensical uh, decisions about compensation, for example, and just like, let's throw the money at this candidate um, because it can just lead to to really poor outcomes uh, and some unhealthy results. Uh, so uh, I think that the current environment uh, highlights the importance uh, of like approaching these issues more f uh, thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. um, and I 
feel like we can avoid to inflate the bubble uh, in this environment that we are currently at. Uh, that's a very sober opinion and i can relate to that like very much whether it's hiring or growth in general right and Mm -hmm. so much money out there in circulation right like basically free money and well yeah it it it, you know things happened for for these kind of reasons and now we are in this more of a cool down uh period for the for the startups and i think we will have to be taking more more sober um you know approach to things and Teresa, uh, you mentioned that uh, I did write an article or two. You are a prolific author <laughs> as well, right? And I really like the article <laughs> that you. <laughs> I really like the article that you wrote about the mistakes that founders make when they build startup teams, right? And you outlined some of the mistakes in there. Uh, which mistake do you find the most serious, and how can founders avoid it or fix it? I think one important topic. Uh, that I actually didn't because like I wrote this article like a year ago but I just like recently published it uh, because like I I didn't have time but uh, but it feels very recent honestly (laughs) (laughs) okay it yeah it's like the the mistakes are still like it it keeps repeating right so but like one really important topic that uh, I I think it's worthy uh, post-mortem right now is actually how VCs and startups uh, have measured success in the past few years. And that's uh, actually comes back to your previous question. And like, if you remember, success was previously measured by how quickly can a company grow um, its headcount. However, right now we witnessed numerous layoffs, as you, as you already mentioned, and it's clear that it was not a healthy metric to use. So uh, that comes to actually the mistake that I see the, the most common uh, commonly happening uh, and that, uh, that founders are just like not paying attention to really proper, uh, proper uh, planning and uh, they're like over hiring, uh, hiring as many people as possible or uh, so they don't plan well and uh, they just underestimate uh, the aspect that, yeah, uh, that they should be really doing this like uh, step back or that they should take a step back and really spend time uh, about thinking about what roles they need uh, and that are truly necessary and most importantly how these roles actually relate to the business goals. Uh, I have a good example of one of the founders that I used to work with and that's Hubert Pallan from Product Board. Um, and he always referred uh, to revenue as the oxygen of the company. And that's how he empathized uh, the importance of this metric and the fact that every single person that we hired uh, or we are hiring, they need to contribute to, to its growth and to this metric growth. And I think that's really important when you like, for example, opening role that you have like Actually, in that article, I'm uh, giving some examples of the question that you should be asking before you open uh, open a new role, and you uh, you actually make sure that you don't hire someone you actually don't need uh, at the end. This is such a strong analogy, and uh, y- you know, building up on that, 
the more people you have in the room, the more oxygen then they consume, right? And mm -hmm. you might suff suffocate at a certain point if you don't let in uh, more oxygen. That goes very much hand in hand with the topic of compensation, right? And you already touched on that a bit earlier, talking about the crazy times that the founders were throwing cash and whatever bonuses and whatnot uh, onto people just to hire them. And with remote work comes this kind of a big, big question. Uh, should the compensation be based on location or on the actual position and seniority? I think there, to me, there is no like right answer. It really depends on uh, on the company uh, company compensation philosophy. Uh, but I always advise to think about it as early as you can. Uh, so even before you start like hiring your like sixth member of the team. Um, and the most importantly is actually once you have uh, your compensation philosophy and you decide about like certain topics that you just mentioned, uh, it's important to keep your approach consistent and communicate clearly about that uh, and communicate why this is your decision and why this is the company's compensation philosophy. Um, so everyone in your company knows that you just didn't come up with the numbers blindly, but uh, you actually give it. Uh, gave it a thought uh, and you care about the fairness uh, and you don't treat salaries as uh, an afterthought. At DeepNote, we decided to go with a market-based approach, uh, which means that we uh, are paying local rates and we use, or like uh, before like setting up and designing the like salary bands and before coming up with our compensation philosophy, uh, we just collected like data everywhere where we could. Uh, like the, the most important source that I have for salary salaries and salary bands uh, and that I take uh, for this like market-based approach is actually option impact. Uh, that was actually, that's a tool uh, with so much data I think oh, it's just like so much data from companies pre-IPO. Uh, it was recently acquired by PAVE. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the whole approach uh, that I shared, the market-based approach is actually inspiration by GitLab. Uh, so just want to clarify. So mm -hmm. you do not consider the cost of living. So you are just taking care at the, at the country's uh, market data. Yes. market data. Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay, exactly. so for example, you know, if a developer in Prague costs somewhere between three to, let's say, five, six, seven thousand euros, you just place your uh, compensation within this range. This is how you approach it, for example. Yeah, we, we uh, decide or like you should decide what percentage you want to play at. You mm -hmm. want, uh, for example, you have a good brand uh, and you can give the candidate like a good reputation or like a salary package. You are like an early stage startup. You should probably be like under the 50 percentile, uh, 50th percentile. But if you like, if you are looking for like three up to five hires in the next years and you have really like you, you don't need to hire so many people you can go to 75th percent again it's about like how you think about your like building the company and about your compensation philosophy but you need to uh first think about how you want to position yourself uh pick the percentile and then you can look at the data and uh define your salary band or uh, based on that some great points that you mentioned over there. One more, one more question about money, <laughs> and then we are going to move on. So, 
inflation, right? Like, and it hurts people. Like, ever it hurts everyone basically. And um, with the higher prices in the in the supermarkets or you know in general, people usually ask for race. How do you approach this topic? Like, what are the best ways to approach extra compensation in the in the times of inflation? Mm-hmm. Uh, good question, and this is what I usually say to when we talk about it uh, with VC talent partners. Or uh, this is actually a compensation philosophy that uh, that we have a deep note or prep board is that you keep a balanced approach, uh, which is keeping in line what you can afford which can be your runway, uh, the internal equity, uh, the value you place on skill set or role, uh, and you should not react solely um, uh, on the like, pressure of the inflation trends and environment, because uh, inflation can go like up, down, up, down. And like if you only like, copy and react solely on that, you can then just like go to your employees and tell them, oh, so now uh, the inflation is high, like 10%. So we give everyone's like 10% raise. And then like once it goes down, you will say, oh, and now we just decided to take all the money back uh, and go like minus 10%. You don't yeah. do that. So uh, we are not moving, for example, with salaries paid on the uh, percentage of inflation rates, but just solely on the like market uh, data, compensation data. Got it. Local- Local market, sorry. Well, absolutely. And there are some macroeconomic uh, trends that are causing the headwind, right? And uh, the, the, the cash is more scarce or the funds are more scarce and it definitely needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah. 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 Um, great. I'm going to move on to the to the topic that I'm personally really excited about, and I think you too, uh, because you ran the whole course on, uh, <laughs> on, on this topic, which is the... Um, you know, the hiring, but also the organizational structure. And, you know, startups often focus more on the delivery in the in the early years, right? Like, okay, we have to deliver, deliver, deliver. And that often comes, you know, at the expense of building the strong organization, right? And some people even call it like a organizational or people debt, as you, as you labeled this term. Um, and at a certain point, you know, it might feel like the whole team is about to collapse, right? Like you reach that point of 50, 60, 70, 80%. So how do you manage this balance between the need for rapid growth and the needs to build uh, strong organizational scaffolding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very complex uh, question that you can you can just like organize the whole uh, whole course about about the topic. Uh, but I think in a very early stage of a company, you have to look um, at who is on your team right now and then who is it you have and that gives you also like the gaps that you need to fill. Uh, before like my any like the first call with any founder, uh, I usually ask about uh, if they can come prepared with, uh, with an org organizational structure or org chart because uh, this helps change the conversation. For example, if they want like to focus me um, on like, how do I fill these roles I have now uh, to, am I focusing on the right roles for the future? So really like taking a step back um, and that also helps me to, to understand if roles are properly scoped for success. Um, if the founder thought about uh, how does the successful 
role uh, look like? Usually, if you ask the founders at this point, if you ask the founder a question, what happens if we fail hiring this for this role? They usually like they are like, hmm, maybe, maybe actually like nothing really happens or like. How does the like success look like uh, in 30, 60, 90 days? They, and you just like realize that they have never thought about that. Uh, and that means that they maybe even don't need this role. Um, then uh, another helpful practice that, that we do is that we ask, or like I usually ask the founder or the, the whole leadership team to build the org chart for the next 12 up to 14 months. Mm -hmm. So... For example, if they've uh, already made it through the Series A, what has to happen to take it to the Series B round, for example, or to to IPO? Mm -hmm. uh, and how does the org chart look like by the end of, for example, year 2024? And then you just, thanks to that, uh, you can collaborate with the whole leadership team on like how does the org chart like look like based on like each uh, each vision. And uh, yeah, then you can plan out uh, your future hires or hiring plans. This is so, so wise and so strategic, really, to look ahead, you know, at the next milestone, whether it's another um, founding ground or another milestone in a company, right? Because very often, you know, you are in this kind of a delivery haste. You say, okay, we need yeah. more people. We need to deliver faster, yeah, faster. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was just wondering, Teresa, do you prompt and do you ask founders to uh, draft the expectations for those critical roles yourself? Do you challenge them on this? Yes. Uh, so that's the first step. Usually you challenge them about like, yeah, how does the successful role in in your eyes look like? Or like what, uh, what are the goals and how are these goals uh, connected or linked to, uh, to for example, the revenue uh, or the growth or the business goals. And um, if they cannot answer that, then it's going to be really like a problem. They, they need to have at least like five bullet points why they need this role to be filled. Uh, and what happens if we, if we don't uh, hire this person, if we fail hiring this person. And once once you have it and they are able to to answer it properly, then you can go and invite like an advisor to actually like uh, um, tell you about the hard skills for for that role and like how to screen for that role if mm -hmm. you don't have, for example, the knowledge um, of that function because it usually happens when like for example you're really early and you're you're very technical founder and you think you need a marketing leader but you have never done marketing yourself or experienced working with someone from marketing so you will need like eventually you will need a person that uh that will help you with um, how to actually uh, design the interviewing process and what you should be asking that person and stuff really great piece of advice there it's it sounds like you're almost building a business case for every single role that you are trying to hire <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, um, yeah. But you should do that. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. <laughs> then you will not, you know, end up overhiring people and, you know, just really, you know, building that organization, yeah, like too large and, uh, you know, the complexity slows you down, right? Like at a certain point. Um, let's look inside the company now. So instead of hiring from the outside, 
Many individual contributors at the early stage startups are later promoted to the leadership positions. For many, this is a great you know, career opportunity and an opportunity for growth in general, but it comes with a certain challenge. Like many of um, those people, including myself, are just thrown into the water and you have to either like a swim or sink, right? So how do you support these first-time managers should this situation happen? Mm-hmm. Um, really good question. I actually... Um have to mention that DeepNote was a very specific startup for me uh, because we had a great people, for example, in engineering. Uh, we were looking for our first engineering manager and we knew that we have the best talent in like internally. So, of course, we offered uh, our, uh, our team leads or like senior engineers, we offered them to actually step up internally at DeepNote, nobody wanted to actually become a manager and nobody wanted to to lead the team um, even though they were like experienced managers but uh, they just they were not interested in that career path because uh, from whatever reasons so we actually we had to hire externally mm-hmm. but uh, in general how uh, how you should support uh, your first time managers i think uh, first of all, everyone is responsible for their own learning. Um, mm-hmm. and like we have keep learning as our like core DNA value. And I, I believe that should be a value or like it should be built in the DNA of anyone who's joining an early stage startup. Every single individual should manage their own like education, uh, and they should not rely on like any external advices from HR, for example, because, uh, Usually HR person does not have like a specific experience from the engineering environment. And like probably the HR manager managed in their life, like a one receptionist or one like recruiter or something like that. So it, uh, you should be, uh, really like looking, uh, to connect with experience, uh, in engineers and HR person can definitely like connect you or like made, uh, provide a great introduction with, uh, with someone like from external, like from, from the world. Um, but, uh, yeah, like from, from my role, I'm always happy to provide recommendations, uh, build the library mm-hmm. for, for the new hire managers and like organize reading clubs about like a really good books that I think that every single new manager should read. Um, but I don't believe in like some like prescriptive approach where you have like a checklist. These are the courses that you need to attend in order to become a good manager. Yeah. No, I, I, it makes a lot of sense. Like co- helping the person connect with a more senior, let's say, leader and mm-hmm. in that particular role, right? Because it the success looks completely differently if you are an engineering leader versus marketing leader versus sales leader. Um, at a certain point, and I really like this approach at Slido, we started organizing so-called Vegas Forum, right? Like, uh, which means what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And we brought together <laughs> the leaders and the managers and we crowdsourced some of the biggest challenges that we faced in our current roles. And uh, we could discuss them openly, like how we how we tackled them in our perspective teams, right? And it was a very good forum for sharing 
a very concrete um, pieces of advice on a certain topic in in your given culture, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of like that initiative, but we implemented it in a in a year seven or even eight, so very 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 much later. But I think this this is something that could be really beneficial for other companies as well, like connecting people and creating that kind of a forum for for knowledge That's- sharing. That's absolutely amazing. I love that idea. It's amazing. Uh, I would be curious about like if people you said what happened uh, or what happened in Vegas. It stays in Vegas, but like that, like do people really like feel like they are in a safe space? Like for like, coming up with the mm, challenges. It, yeah, actually, it was a really safe safe place to share these kind of challenges like either yourself you were you were struggling as a manager or you brought up a certain situation right where you didn't know how to handle it or you handled that situation and you would love to hear the feedback right so in this kind of you know in this environment you were able to get a lot of uh, great advice from other leaders in the company Teresa, the last question, and we ask the same question to all of our guests. What free books inspired you into a new way of thinking recently? <laughs> I love that question. I always ask the candidates this question. And uh, I think uh, they're like right now, if I had the same candidate, for example, in like more companies, they're always like laughing at me because I actually get the inspiration from the smartest and the most inspiring candidates. So I read all the books that my candidates are reading. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's really great way how to, uh, how to build your, um, uh, your backlog uh, of the books. And, but like the, maybe I, I want to speak about the, the first, the first business book that I've ever read before I joined the tech startup scene. And it was hard things about hard things from Ben Horowitz. Uh, and it remains, uh, one of my m- most favorite books. Um, uh, I really appreciate that it opens all the difficult questions. Um, and I really like it. The second book would be the Alliance from Reid Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you read or have you heard of it? I haven't heard of this one, no. It actually inspired me to think differently. Um, it was like in the beginning uh, of hiring at PredictBorg and I found myself constantly referring to, to it during interviews with candidates because it was really like a game changer. Um, it introduced me a new realistic a loyalty partnership between the employee and the employer. Um, so that was really inspiring one. And I also kind of like often go back to this book and on the very practical note, I love Elad Gale, a high growth handbook, uh, mm-hmm. that actually interestingly, that an angel investor in deep note, uh, thinking about it now, I feel, uh, it was one of the reasons that why I joined a deep note. <laughs> because he's really my like really favorite author and each chapter of this book uh, specifically provides valuable uh, guidance on how you build a company like from from really like hiring or uh, product like how you go about product market fit firing or uh, like anything it's awesome Teresa thank you so much for the tips and thank you so <laughs> for all the insights that you shared with us during yeah. this interview it was great having you here with us today Thank you so much for sharing your insights. I've learned a lot from from this. Thank you.